Um, a few weeks ago, um, we uh, we started talking about this new ministry that is being launched, getting ready to be launched, uh, called the Senior Moment. And uh, the idea behind this is that um, that all of our shut-ins, all those that can't come to gather with us as we gather to worship, that we would not neglect them, but that the body would would every month go out and pay a visit to them and just spend some time with them. And several of our people are already doing that already. But um, this was an idea from one of our members just to just corporately to put some real kind of intentionality behind this. Well, as we began to talk about this, we began to, to think about that as we do this, as you go out and you go into nursing home facilities, uh, uh, assisted living facilities, you're going to also encounter um, nurses there, potentially doctors, uh, people in housekeeping, uh, whatever the case may be. You're going to go into homes where you're going to meet family members, potentially, of uh, the, the member who's now shut in. And so we began to think, what an incredible opportunity to share the gospel, potentially. And so as a pastor, I began to think, you know, um, are we equipped to do that? Are we equipped to take someone through the gospel, to lead them to Christ? And many of you probably are. You're probably very comfortable. But I'm also aware that if you're like me, sometimes you wish you were more equipped and you wish you were more comfortable in doing it as well. So we began to talk about maybe doing a training session for those that would be involved in that ministry. Well, it didn't make any sense to me to just hold that for just those that would be involved, which, by the way, 26 adults, 26 adults, 10 kids and one dog uh, ready to go in this ministry uh, the second week of September. And uh, so we're, we're excited about that. But it didn't make much sense to me just to kind of hoard that and just do the training for just those people when all of us are called to be evangelists. Every single day, if we're believers, we're called to go out and to share the story that has also changed our lives. And so that was the idea of here coming together tonight to share with you the gospel and uh, personal evangelism, which is what I'm going to get into in just a second. About that same time, um, Erskine and Edna Carroll were about to go on a trip to spend some time with some friends out in Oregon. And uh, they prayed. They had a particular friend. I'm not going to steal their thunder, but they had a particular friend they were going to be with that they were pretty sure was lost, didn't really know the, the whole situation, but were just asking us to pray for them that they would have an opportunity to share the gospel with this friend. Um, they've come back from that, and they've had that opportunity. And so I just want to ask them, Erskine and Carol, to come, and just for a few minutes, however long, um, just to share how that went down. And uh, this is just a real recent example of, Sharing the gospel. So, we well, talking about senior moments. At least we remember to come to church. Um, so, if uh, and I got my notes with me, so I can remember where those are. I guess we'll be good to go. Where you want to get? Uh, as Scott was saying a few weeks ago, uh, we came uh, this, during prayer meeting and we shared with the uh, group that we we're going to be visiting some friends out in California, and one of these friends. Uh, his name is Bob Dewey, and uh, he had been diagnosed with uh, cancer. And um, we don't believe he's a Christian. So we had just said, you know, 
maybe put some words in our mouth or an opportunity in front of us to be able to do something for Bob. Uh, just to give you a little bit of background, several years ago we joined, joined a group of uh, friends from the Spartanburg area, and every other year uh, there's eight couples of us, 16 from the West Coast and 16 from the East Coast, and we get together and the uh, guys play golf and the women have some activities or they really can just do whatever they please to do um, while we're uh, playing golf. And uh, this year, Scott said again that we, we were scheduled to go to Oregon, which we did. And uh, Ed and Carol and I felt uh, that we needed to uh, witness to Bob. And uh, knowing his condition, he had just gone through uh, knee surgery as well as this uh, being diagnosed with uh, cancer. We just felt sure that he wouldn't be there. Uh, we also knew that the uh, early in August was his birthday. And uh, we had an idea, and I'm going to let Andy Carroll share with you uh, what we talked about there. You want me to hold it? Yeah. Well, since we didn't know whether we'd see him or not, we decided to send him a copy of the Living Bible as a birthday gift. And I enclosed a note uh, telling Bob how much Erskine and I loved him and that during times when we faced uh, hard, difficult situations, how we had... uh, ask the Lord, you know, for help, and that he's always there to help us. And I also put a copy of the plan of salvation that's on the open windows, on the, you know, front page of the open windows. And I had uh, suggested some scripture for him to read. And so, uh, to our surprise, uh, Bob and his wife were at the opening uh, dinner, the kickoff dinner. And uh, he came over to me with tears in his eyes, and told me how much that the gift had meant to him. He said it was the most precious gift that he had ever been given. And then a little bit later, his wife came over to me, and she said, uh, and Carol, she said, thank you again so much for the beautiful gift, for the Bible, and said, uh, I've underlined all the scripture that you suggested in the Bible. And uh, then even... Uh, that night, and, and again another time, uh, the best friend, his best friend's wife, came up to me and said, "Oh, said that was such a, a lovely thing you did. Said, you know, what a wonderful gift." And then she said it again right before I left. And uh, Bob and Pat left the next day to go to San Francisco for him to get his chemo treatment, so we didn't see them anymore. And at our last dinner get-together, we were sitting next to another couple, a California couple. And so uh, some of the ladies would get together, you know, early in the morning and go different places. And uh, so the, the guy said, well, and the gal said, where, are you, where have you been? You know, what are you doing with yourself? And I said, well, I said, uh, every morning when I get up, I said, I, I like to have my prayer and I have a Bible study. And, uh, you know, he didn't say anything else. While the other ladies were doing their thing, that's what I do. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, then I kind of, you know, make my plans then for the rest of the day. I said, I'm, I'm kind of a, I'm happy being by myself. I can entertain myself. But, of course, I love the ladies, too. And, and I would go later in the day. But, anyway, um, that's what I told him that I do each day, which I do. As I said earlier, uh, Ed and Carol and I have no reason to believe that any of the group from the West Coast uh, 
are Christians. We don't believe that Bob probably is and, and none of the rest of them because they don't, uh, they don't they don't show us much indication of that. And we don't know what Bob's future holds for him, but we do did do feel that we have done what the Lord uh, wanted us to do. Now, our, our hope was that everything would have been, in fact, we had a plan through our Bible study group that we'd have done a little bit differently if Bob had shown up for the full week. But given the circumstances, we feel like the, we did what the Lord wanted us to do. And um, lastly, as Edna Carroll said, she was able to talk with another couple who sat next to us at dinner the last evening and uh, when she was telling them about this. So the next morning, I had the opportunity to play golf with Dev. It's an Indian couple who uh, live here in the uh, in San Francisco area. They've been here for a long time. But the next day, I had opportunity to play golf with Dev. And... Uh, he said several things that led me to believe that he was thinking about what Edna Carroll had told him the night before. And again, I don't know what effect it'll have on him, but Edna, he said something like, Edna Carroll spends a lot of time uh, studying and praying. And I said, yes, I said, that's very important to her. And I said, it's very important to us. And I said, she does spend a lot of time doing that. And then uh, I guess he noticed uh, over the time that we've been around them, they always have cocktails or at least have a glass of wine or something like that. And he says, uh, have you always chosen not to drink? And I said, no, I, I drank some in, in the past, but I, as I've matured a Christian, as a Christian, the Lord has impressed upon me the, uh, the social drink, drinking is not the best thing for my witness. And that's just basically how I handled it with him. And in closing, uh, we'll continue to play for, pray for Bob and for any of the California group and, uh, who may not know Jesus Christ uh, as their Savior. And, and hopefully that this is a way of witnessing. I don't know if it's the best way to witness, but it was the opportunity we had. And I'd like to uh, thank each one of you for your prayers for us before we, uh, as we came to you a few weeks ago, and for the opportunity to be able to share with us tonight. You mean a lot to introduce Thank you, Erskine and Carol. Appreciate you all being willing to share. And, um, you know, struck with a couple of things there uh, as I listened to that, and I'd already actually heard um, the report of that, but um, struck with a couple of things. Number one is, you know, you've got to be willing to, if you're going to be evangelistic, if you're going to have any witness at all, you've got to be willing to cultivate some relationships that the, where, where the people don't know the Lord. Um, uh, we we grow up or, or we, we spend all of our time here in the South, really with people that we go to church with, that we that are believers, that we're confident uh, that they know the Lord. And uh, and we're called to be a witness and to uh, to point others to Christ. But oftentimes we spend very little time with people that don't know Christ. And so that's the first thing I thought of is, is you know, you're talking there about a man who, uh, by all indications, is, is lost. And then that's spun off and led into a conversation with another man uh, who, by all indications, is also lost. So we've got to have those relationships. Someone shared with me just the other day. They said someone, I guess, confronted them, almost um, reprimanded them for them spending as much time as they as they are with lost people. And uh, the person's response was, uh, how am I supposed to witness if I'm not around lost people, which is the right response, we have to be around them. Now, now we don't we don't live there. We don't live 
like the world. We are to be um, different and separate, but we are to be in the world. Uh, the second thing I thought of was probably in your mind, because you've almost been and I have been, we've been trained to kind of think this way, that when when we had prayed for them to go and share and when I brought them up here for them to share with you how it went in your mind, you're probably thinking, oh, the man was radically saved. And that was just a tremendous testimony. But the reality is it doesn't always work that way. Um, we don't know. We pray that Bob will come to know the Lord, but we don't know. When or really if that will happen. And so um, does that mean we just stop witnessing? Certainly not. Did you come to know the Lord the first time anybody ever said anything about Jesus to you? <laughs> I didn't. I grew up in a godly home. It was uh, for the first eight years of my life. I'm sure I was in church every time the doors were opened. I heard the gospel multiple times, but it was not until I was eight years old that I actually uh, fell under conviction of my sin, knew that I needed uh, to repent of my sin and trust Christ. And so we keep witnessing, even though we don't always see the results that we want to see. It doesn't mean that there's a failure there. We just we're faithful to do what God's called us to do. So uh, those are just a couple of observations. I, I want to share with you tonight a little bit out of uh, out of Scripture, but also it's a large part of what I'm going to share out of a book that I would like to recommend to you. Um. My daughter picked it up and she looked at the front cover and she said, uh, that's very creepy. And the cover is very creepy. Uh, it's, it's a book called The Gospel and Personal Evangelism by Mark Dever. The front cover, um, there's some medieval type art on there. And it is from that, that style. It's very kind of creepy and odd. But uh, Mark Dever, who is the pastor of the Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., just takes this issue of personal evangelism and your life and, and the average Christian's life and just sort of breaks it down and uh, puts it very simply out there in a very small, very easy to read book. So I recommend that to you. You can probably go to Amazon and and, uh, and pick one of those up. Um, how should we evangelize? Erskine walked off the platform tonight saying, I don't know if that's the right way to do it, but that was one way to do it. How should we how should we evangelize? Well, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. I want to read to you verses 13 through 17. Romans 10, verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. They have not all, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Um, we are to share the gospel. We are to evangelize by preaching the gospel. But maybe you don't fancy yourself as a preacher. So how are you, the one who's out there and not up here, supposed to evangelize? Well, in the same way that I'm supposed to evangelize. And I want to show you that tonight. Um, how are we to spread the word? Well, let me give you just a few things with balance. First of all, 
You can take notes on this. If, if you don't want to take notes, you can come get the notes from me later. But we ought to share the gospel with balance. We ought to spread the word with balance. Let me. What are you talking about? What should we balance? Three things. First of all, honesty. We should be honest. We should be just gut level honest in our evangelism and spreading the word. We do no favors when we look at a person and we sugarcoat things or we adjust the gospel so that we think it might become more palatable to them, more appealing to them. They might like it better if we say it like this. No, the reality is we do them no favors. In fact, we dilute the gospel and it is not effective when it is diluted. When you remove any part of the gospel, you remove its power. So we've got to be honest. We, we have to be completely honest, particularly when it comes to including the part about sin and guilt, the need to repent. But see, those aren't popular today, are they? Oftentimes we want to say things like, did you know that God loves you and he made you to love him? And if you just pray this prayer. Well, what are they being saved from? They're not at odds with God. If if God loves them, why do they need to pray the prayer? We've got to be honest. Listen to what um, and, you know, you know me, I'm not one to hold back names. Uh, Robert Schuller. Remember Robert Schuller? Crystal Cathedral. Um, listen to what Robert Schuller said. I don't think that anything has been done in the name of Christ and under the banner of Christianity that has proven more destructive to human personality and hence counterproductive to the evangelistic enterprise than the unchristian, uncouth strategy of attempting to make people aware of their lost and sinful condition. What? If you remove the fact that I am a sinner in need of a savior, there is no gospel. There are others that, while they might not go so far as to agree with Robert Schuller, they might think or might preach that it would become more accepted or more responded to if instead of using language of sin and guilt, if we would simply talk in the language of being set free. And Christ wants to set you free. Then that's true. But free from what? Turn, if you will, to John chapter 8. John 8, verses 31 and 36. John 8, verse 31 says this. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word... You are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's a great message. Listen to their response. They answered him. We are offspring of Abraham. have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Their question was. The truth will set me free from from what? I'm not enslaved. I'm not in bondage. Jesus goes on in verse 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus own 
technique, if you will, or method, if you will, was to start with their slavery. They have to see the problem. They have to be to see what they are set free from. This is how the early church witnessed. If you remember, remember Peter, as he stood and he preached on the day of Pentecost Remember what he said to them. This Jesus whom you crucified. Is that honest? I'd say it's honest. He didn't say this Jesus who, you know, somehow was crucified. No, he looks at him and he says, this Jesus who you crucified. That's pretty blatant. It's pretty bold. That's pretty honest. Stephen, Stephen, later on, same kind of thing. Right before Stephen is stoned to death for his faith, Stephen blatantly and honestly tells them the truth that they are sinners. They need to be saved. Mark Dever in this book, The Gospel and Personal Evangelism, says this. The truth is the fall, talking about the fall in Genesis, Genesis 3. The truth is the fall did not leave people neutral toward God, but at enmity with him. They need to understand that we're not starting from the point of. Moral neutrality with God, we're not starting from the point of we're his special creation created above the angels and therefore he loves us and he's just this great grandfather in the sky that will just look past all of our shortcomings. Instead, we're starting at the point where we are not his special creation, but we are his creation created in his image. But we rejected it. We went our own way and we are rebellious. We are at odds. We are in desperate need of someone to bring us back into right relationship with him. You see it? That's where we got to start. And so when you're out there sharing your faith, witnessing to co-workers or neighbors or whatever, Here's what you don't want to do. You don't want to adjust the gospel. You don't want to shy away from being honest about this. They need to be confronted with the fact that what they are doing and who they are is they are committing sin because they are a sinner. And that's not a popular message, but it is one that we desperately need to communicate. We need to be honest about their need to repent. Somebody just call out to me. What is what is repentance? I heard turn. What'd you say? Confession. Asking for forgiveness. I'm sorry. Change of heart. Well, I, I still didn't get it right. Run. Yeah. To, to run back. Turn around and run back to him, change of heart, ask forgiveness, all those things. Let me give you just a few statements. Repentance is turning from the sin that you love to the God that you're called to love. Repentance is admitting that you are not God. Repentance is beginning to value Jesus more than your immediate pleasure. Notice I said beginning to do that. Because most of the time you're not going to be able to immediately value him more than your pleasure. It's going to be a process. Repentance is giving up those things the Bible calls sin and leaving them to follow Jesus. We've got to be honest about that. And and when you're talking with someone who 
who is lost, regardless if they are a drunk every night of the week or if they're a really good person, if they don't know Christ as their personal Lord, Savior that they are trusting in alone, then they need to repent. There are things that they need to leave. And that's that's there's no other way to communicate that other than to be honest. Secondly, we need to balance not only honesty, but we need to balance honesty with urgency. With urgency. We also have to emphasize the urgency with which people ought to repent and believe they must decide when. Now. They must decide now. Sometimes I will say in, in the course of an invitation and maybe I've done so wrongly, I, w- I will make a statement of, you know, the invitation doesn't end when we say amen. And it really doesn't because I, I don't want to send people out of here thinking that the only place they can ever turn from their sin and trust Christ is in this building. But maybe I should be a little more passionate about communicating to them that you don't know what's out there. You don't know if you'll have another opportunity. We must communicate the urgency that they need to believe now. Because they don't know what's going to happen out there. And secondly, because. Will God call? If Christ is the only way, we must remind them if Christ is the only way, then what are you waiting for? What are, are you waiting for something else better to come along? If he's the only way, there's not going to be anything else that's going to come along. We're not promised tomorrow. Won't go there, but James chapter four, verses 13 and 14 talks of this. It speaks of why do we talk like, well, tomorrow I'll go here. The next day I'll go there. Well, when, what we ought to say is if the Lord wills. See, we don't we don't know that we'll have tomorrow. Um, this really came home to me uh, a few years back when uh, I don't even remember the person or the situation, but um, Lana and I were in ministry and we were talking with someone and the situation was really dire with a loved one of theirs. And it just looked like it was not there was it was not going to turn around. The person was was going to eventually die. Uh, this this disease, this sickness that was going on in their life, it was going to take them and. Even though I knew it, my wife just looked at the person and she said, but, you know, none of us know if we'll have tomorrow. And for the first, I mean, I knew it, but it just washed over me in a new way that I don't know. I mean, this person has this prognosis from a doctor, but who's to say that I won't come to an end tomorrow or tonight? Who's to say that Jesus won't come back? We must be honest, not only about the cost of repentance, but we must be uh, honest also about the expiration date of the offer. It's not it's not rude. It's not manipulation. You know, I think we've bought into this lie that when we try to say things like you don't know if you'll have another opportunity. I think we've said, wait a minute, that's manipulation. And you're trying to scare them into something. That's not manipulation. It's just the truth. And it really is. I mean, it's just the truth. Um, We must balance honesty with urgency. 
third, we must balance joy. We must put joy into the thing. If we stop before getting to joy, what would our evangelism look like? If all we did was we're, we're going to be honest about your need to repent and we're going to be urgent in it. What would our evangelism look like? Like a lot of what maybe some of the people out there have experienced. It is that manipulation. It is that trying to twist people in. And it's it's rude. It's pushy. It's um, it's inconsiderate. It's very grim. It would leave us being intense and forceful and overbearing and rude. It wouldn't sound very much like good news, would it? But see, if good news is really good news. Then it ought to show up in how we share. Right. You ever thought about all the love language that, that the Bible uses? That God loves us, that we love God because he first loved us, that Jesus loves us even when we were sinners. He died for us. And because of that, now we love him. We've been brought into this right relationship and we are being made into the, the image of Christ. That ought, to, that ought to fill us with joy. Joy that is unable to be stole away from us. But there's so many, and, and, and I watch them come in every week and they take seats all across this room. And there's some people that come in and they claim to know Christ, but they are the most miserable People on the face of the planet. And it doesn't jive. It doesn't make sense. Because if Jesus has done what the gospel says he has done in your life, you can't help but to be filled with joy over that. And so when we when we come to witness to people, we do so with honesty, with urgency. But we also show them the joy that has been brought into our lives. So that's the balance that we must have. We must balance honesty, urgency and joy. Honesty with an, an urgency with no joy gives us grim determination. Honesty and joy with no urgency gives us a carelessness about time. And urgency and joy with no honesty leads us to distorted claims about what the gospel can do in the right now. We've got to balance all those honesty and urgency and joy. So let me give you some specific suggestions just in the last few minutes here together. I want to give you some specific suggestions as you think about sharing the gospel, as you work toward it. And then on the very end, I want to lead you through and and lead you to mark certain scriptures in your Bible that will help you in actually witnessing to someone with your Bible in front of you. So let me give you some suggestions. Again, these are not original with me. This is out of Mark Dever's book, but let me just share them. First of which, pray. Pray. The Bible reveals to us that salvation is the work of God. You ever heard somebody say, we went out tonight on visitation and we saved three people. They didn't save anybody. They visited some people. They may have spoken to them about Christ. They may have been kind. But they didn't save anybody. The work of salvation is God's work. 
So if the work of salvation is God's work and we're going out to witness and evangelize, shouldn't it wouldn't it make sense that we would before we go pray and ask God to work where we're going? So pray, pray, ask him. Secondly, use the Bible. I'm going to show you how in, in just a minute. There are multiple ways, just one way. But use the Bible. Turn to Acts chapter 8. I want to just show you a um, particular instance of this happening, this, this um, being used. Acts chapter 8, verses 26 down through 35. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of, of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning Seated in his chariot, and he was and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran up to the chariot, ran to him and heard his heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, uh, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and began, beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news concerning Jesus. This is just a practical, everyday example of how you can use the Bible to witness to someone. Um, I was this week studying in downtown Greenville. Um, had to be over that way uh, to go to the hospital. And as on my way back through, I just stopped at the Liquid Highway down on Main Street. And I was sitting it out in the back courtyard with my Bible open, my laptop open, and I was studying. And, um, and a man sitting across the way came over and he said, excuse me, he said, are you a pastor or something? And I said, what gave it away? <laughs> and turned out he was a youth pastor uh, in downtown Greenville. But there are people that you will encounter that will have a Bible on their desk or who will be reading scripture. You may be able to do what Erskine and Edna Carroll did and just send someone or give someone a copy of the word of God. Point them to some scriptures and say, start here. And then I want us to get back together and I want us to talk. I want you, as you're reading these, these verses, just jot down questions that you have and let's get back together and let's just talk them through. That's a conversation. That's a great way to start. That's not a sales pitch. That is taking the person into consideration. And along the way, you can be honest and urgent and filled with joy. So use the Bible. Um, God will use his word to do the work. Third, be clear. Be clear. Think carefully about the language you use. 
When I first wrote this up, I said I wrote avoid churchy words, but I scratched it out. Or actually, I hit the delete button. And I didn't say avoid churchy words, but instead I said explain churchy words. Because there's a difference. I think we sometimes have dumbed down the gospel by avoiding churchy words. When people can, they can handle churchy words. We live in a day where people are more knowledgeable than they ever have been in human history. You can say words to them like justification, sanctification, glorification, propitiation. You can say those words as long as you come behind them and explain what they are. Now, some of you are looking about somebody's going to explain them to me because I don't know. Then learn. Learn. Don't be content to sit in the, in the seats and expect the one who's paid to do it to do it. I, I say that to you like I say it because I love you. Learn. Come behind and explain those words. Oh, how great would it be if you were to be able to sit across from a person and explain to them propitiation that because of our sin, we have offended. We have we have rebelled against the God of the universe. Someone had to come and turn his wrath toward us into favor. We couldn't do it, but God himself stepped out of heaven, took on flesh, went to the cross and sacrificed himself to turn the wrath of God into favor for you. Wow. Explain, think, think, be clear, think about these things, use words and then explain them. Translating the gospel into words that the hearer will understand doesn't necessarily mean translating it into words that they will like. The membership class this morning, we had a couple that left after the membership class. But that's the reason we have the membership class. Because in the middle of the membership class, and I don't say that to, you know, don't, don't think, wow, you know, what, what was that about? In the middle of the membership class, there was a piece of the doctrine that we believe as Southern Baptists that they just couldn't get their faith around. And so when they came to me afterwards, we, we discussed it. I was kind in discussing it. We came to the, to the end conclusion, and I said, I'm sorry that we don't agree on that. It's one of those things that, uh, you know, we're, we're probably not going to be able to agree on. They thanked me for it, and they left. Isn't that better? Isn't that better than them getting in and a year later pushing doctrine that we don't believe and it translating into disunity, disruption, and turmoil in the body? And some of you aren't sure, but that is better. I can tell you that's better. It's better that we take it out and take it in the front end than later on. Let me just give you a couple more and then I'll I'll wrap it up. You should, number four, provoke self-reflection. You should provoke self-reflection. You should ask good questions. Tell me, what do you think about Jesus? I mean, Jesus is probably the most popular 
human figure in all of history. Say that to somebody. What do you think about Jesus? But then if you ask the question, you've got to be willing to listen to the answer. You got to listen. But then you can take the answer and you don't take it and say, well, let me show you how you're wrong, you know. But then you take their answer and you begin to then process that with them, because many of them will say they believe certain things about certain things, but they've never thought them all the way through. And you can begin to ask questions about their responses that will help them to see the error in what they're saying. Sometimes when we do that, we're helping them to flesh it out for the very first time. Fifth is this. Use the church. Use the church. Two things I mean with this. One. Invite people here. Invite people here. You know, sometimes you don't have the opportunity to just say, let me tell you, let me tell you the gospel. But you can say to someone, hey, would you come to church with me? Bring them here. Invite them here. I'll make this commitment to you. I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm, I'm going to share that regularly. We're going to share it in our music. We're hopefully sharing it and putting it out there in everything that we're doing. So invite them to church. But second thing I mean by use the church. If they come to church and they find us at odds with each other. Bickering among ourselves. What do you think that will do to their understanding of the gospel? So we also must use the church in that we've got to love one another. And sometimes that's not one that um, that loving each other doesn't mean adjusting it either. It won't always be liked. Loving is not a feeling. But we must love one another. Jesus said they will know you are my disciples by the way you love one another. Um, Our lives separately and corporately are the confirming echo of our witness. And so I would say use the church, invite them here, but then also sharpen your brother. Push your sister toward Christ. Um, Those are just some practical examples. Let me give you then I want to just instruct you to mark your Bibles. Uh, Some of you don't write in your Bibles. And if you don't write in your Bible, that's fine. You don't I'm not twisting your arm to write in your Bible. But I've given you tonight the kind of the 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 spirit with which we should we should witness practical uh, suggestions for how we should witness. Now, I want to give you just a real solid tool to have with you if you've got your Bible with you. Um, The way you'll do this is you'll start by opening your Bible to Romans chapter three. Romans chapter three. And I want you to underline the verse twenty three. Romans 3:23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then out in the margin right beside Romans 3:23, I want you to write Romans 6:23. Romans 6:23. And then I want you to turn over to Romans 6:23. And I want you to underline it. Underline Romans 6:23. 
Out beside Romans 6.23 in the margin, I want you to write Romans 5.8. Romans 5.8. Turn there. Underline Romans 5.8. Out to the margin beside Romans 5.8, I want you to write Romans 10, 9 and 10. And then I want you to turn to Romans 10, 9 and 10 and underline it. Now, that's just the Romans road. There's nothing new or earth shattering about that. But I got to tell you, I've been in ministry now for coming up on two decades and I still go back to the Romans road all the time. I mean, the Romans road is I don't know who originally kind of, you know, coined it the Romans road. But it's one of those that when I'm having to counsel with someone, when someone comes and says, I'm lost, I need I need to be saved. I immediately sit down with them, open my Bible, go to Romans 3. And I just walk them through that. And, and the reason you write out beside that verse is it, it shows you, now where do I go next? You go from there, it shows you where to go next. From there, where to go next. And um, we don't want you simply to, I don't want you simply to say, if I can just get them through those four scripture passages and get them to pray this prayer, then they're saved. You may get to the end of that and, and they may say, well, I just I still don't know. I still don't understand or I'm not ready yet. And that's OK. The last thing we want to do is is rush them through a sales pitch, get them to say yes, and then give them false security that may damn them and send them to hell. So take your time. Be balanced. Honesty, urgency, joy. Follow these simple suggestions and then use the Romans road as you talk to people. Is it helpful? All right, let's pray together. Lord, God, thank you for, Lord, saving us, but then also not just saving us to, um, to just sit and wait. But, God, you have saved us and enlisted us. And, God, we pray that you would, Lord, make us more confident, not necessarily in ourselves, but in you. But God, help us to get better at this. I pray that you would build social skills in us, communication skills. Lord, give us caring hearts. Lord, put people in our paths, in our lives, where we can get to know people that are lost. Lord, I pray, God, that this would be this session tonight would be used over and over and over again, whether it is through the senior moment ministry or whether it is simply in the kitchen at the table over coffee with a friend um, from the neighborhood. God, whatever it is, God, I pray that you would use it many, many, many times over. Lord, I pray this in Jesus name. Amen.